that? It's a book of scary stories. Tell me a story. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, this is the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! Hey, I'm Trevor. I'm Lauren. I'm Leo. And, and we're, we're the, the Boo Crew! Welcome to episode 60. This week, writer, director, producer, Andre Overdahl. He tells us all about his new film, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. If you're listening to this at the time of release, in theaters now. We talk about bringing the infamous book series to life, the importance of translating Stephen Gamble's terrifying artwork to the screen, the creative collaboration with Guillermo del Toro, and why you should see this movie with your family. Gather around, we're about to open the book. I'm afraid that we woke something up. You shouldn't have taken the book. We've got to stop it. This is Andre Overall, and you're listening to some scary stories with the Boo Crew. When the stories write themselves and it all comes alive. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is a director, writer, and producer whose creative voice is paying homage to the very best elements of filmmaking in the horror genre, making him the Dark North Star leading the way to a world where characters rule and story is everything. His career started in Norway, where he's one of the most successful commercial directors in the country. He did his first feature film, Future Murder, in 2001, and by the time his highly regarded foray into the fantasy documentary-style horror film called Troll Hunter was unleashed, the pages of Variety magazine put him on the 10 direct to watch list. In 2016, he brought us a movie that is on everyone's list as one of the best genre films in decades, and it's a completely original breath of fresh air, even though its presentation was suffocating, claustrophobic, and terrifying. That film was The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Our guest this week is a master of intimacy and a brilliant scribe of those moments in between the scares that crawl into your skin. He is back with a new film, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, produced by Academy Award winner Guillermo del Toro. We welcome Andre Overdahl. Yeah! <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time during this incredibly busy period of your life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this week is quite busy. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Busy. I can imagine. So scary stories were such an integral part of exposing so many young people to the art of dark storytelling and horror. Can you go back to when you were a kid and discuss the first experiences you had with the horror genre and those films that pulled you in? When I was a kid, I don't know if I remember remember specifically the first horror film I saw as a kid, but I was too young when I saw Poltergeist, I know that for sure. (laughs) And that's a film that really stuck with me. My grandparents and my parents and babysitters used to read me the Norwegian fairy tales that Trollhunter is based on, which are really scary and terrifying at times, and violent. Then I was really young, so that's really my, I would say, my first exposure to horror in a very folktale-y way, though. Creatively, did you enter into the world of filmmaking through writing first? Yeah, I mean, 
and I used to draw uh, comic book stuff, all, you know, all on my own. It was never published, or but I used I used to love to draw, and I was I have to say I was probably pretty good at writing prose in school. I always got very good grades of sto- for storytelling. Then I got into filmmaking, like when I was twelve, thirteen, with Super Eight camera and spent all the money i had and more <laughs> when around <laughs> right. 15 when i i could buy a it was a, called high eight very early video format and a camera and i started shooting all these short action films that were basically like extremely cheap uh, imitations of indiana jones kind of runarounds in forests and being all action they were like 25 minutes of there or i have them all on vhs still oh cool (laughs) (laughs) but it was very rudimentary you know but i learned so much and then i decided to go to film school and my parents supported me and then i came here to go to a school in santa barbara which was called brooks institute i spent four years there and i made the feature film that you mentioned future murder was actually my uh, graduation film project there wow. and it was uh, sold to several countries um, it was released on Hollywood video exclusively oh, wow. on the video chain that existed back yeah, yeah, then yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah, that, I remember yeah. that yeah we even made money the, I had a co-director on it co-writer and a co-director on it and we, uh, we actually made money on the movie it was quite extraordinary for us we shot it on 16 millimeter with the school's equipment and actors from Hollywood talk about the success of 2010's Troll Hunter and the effect that that had on your career at that point that's the career that's where it all starts I was just lucky to I walked into a, a producer the biggest producer in Norway pitched him the idea and I remember sitting in a meeting like this size and just I was terrified of looking at him because I his judgment of my idea was going to make or break it so I remember like talking to the other guy in the room and then I turned over and looked at him and he was just sitting there with this big smile <laughs> I love this idea this that's- is the best awesome. idea I've heard in years. So he made some calls and we got the financing together. It took a couple of years with the Norwegian government, but that's the whole thing. When we made the movie, suddenly I got a Facebook message from an agent at William Morris Endeavor. And it was, uh, I mean, a Facebook message. And it was, uh, hey, we represent directors like, you know, Quentin Tarantino and Ridley Scott and blah, blah, blah. And, We'd like to see your movie. <laughs> it's like, okay. And then weeks later, I was on a grand tour of, uh, of Hollywood, uh, just being shipped around from studio to studio and, and famous producers and filmmakers that I've admired my whole life. That's incredible. And Chris Columbus, uh, who we know very well. Yeah. <laughs> Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. Um, he uh, optioned the rights to do the remake for Troll Hunter, which never materialized. But I mean, just the honor of having a, a childhood hero like him was just, uh, you know, Oh, for sure. It doesn't need a remake at all. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's become such a beloved film and one of the greatest found footage movies of all time. Is a return to that world imminent either by yourself, do you think, as a sequel? I don't personally feel like I don't have a need to visit it, revisit it, because I think I did what I wanted to do with that world and the story. I think doing another film would just be running around with different trolls, not mm. discovering something. In my, I have to discover something in my movies. So that's why the autopsy of Jane Doe appealed to me because it was really about discovering everything in, in basically inside right. her. One of the brilliant things about Troll Hunter was this came out at a time when found footage movies were already abundant, right? I mean, Blair Witch and you had Paranormal Two. All these movies were already out. Now this movie did something different. The pacing was perfect because it kept going like you didn't have to wait. The people weren't fumbling around with cameras for half an hour. Or stupid jokes. It's like by the 13th minute, 
you've already figured out who the troll hunter is and you already have him in the shots so the crew's following him every, everywhere he goes so it starts to build the, the excitement the tension of like okay what comes next you know, what, are they, what are they going what are they doing one thing I loved about this was the pacing it was just so different from everything else out there oh that's great I mean one thing I was very preoccupied writing the script for that and creating that film was the it had to because it's so this the form and everything is so kind of wild it had to have a very rigid structure so it had to adhere to a three-act very clear clean structure and then i would try to hide that structure in all the mess of filmmaking in a way the documentary feel that it was supposed to have i think that's what gives it a feeling of momentum and forward yeah forward momentum as opposed to a lot of found footage films that sometimes divert too much because a documentary will right. naturally divert in different directions. Do you go into this knowing that the uh, CG would work? Hoping that the CG would work, yeah. Um, I mean, I remember seeing the movie, the Korean movie, The Host. Okay, right. And it was very impressive how, what the, the level on that budget level, the, the quality of VFX they've been able to do on that film. And we used that as a reference for, okay, this is what we got to achieve. And also, you know, shooting it with the found footage documentary style, you, worst case, we could always turn the camera away from the, we could create suspense with cheaper means right. if the VFX wouldn't work. So we had a lot of uh, leeway in making it work in a way. And then you have the uh, noses, the the whole thing with the, they can smell Christian blood. <laughs> is that from actual folklore? Yeah, from... no, that, that comes from the fairy tales. Oh, really? That is like, a, basically, it, I think it means to smell human blood. But because of the times it was written in, they yes. just wrote Christian blood. <laughs> right. Because it was in the 18th century or whatever. It's always in those stories. So we had to use it. So it was, to me, it was really funny to be able to play with such a silly thing to say <laughs> right. and put it into real uh, context of reality. The Autopsy of Jane Doe. On behalf of horror fans everywhere, thank you so much for making that movie. Yes. <laughs> yes. So great. It puts you in a very confined space with some incredible actors. You had Emile Hirsch and Brian Cox and Olwen Kelly, Ophelia Lovabond making it all about the story and performance. And for that film, you did something kind of wild. You constructed this one massive continual set, which is a tremendous feat on a limited budget. Why was that important to you? And what were the advantages of having that set built there? One huge thing for me shooting that film was we had to shoot it in as much chronological order as we possibly could. And huh. to have it basically then as one set that was just, we could go from scene one in that room to scene two in that room, to th scene three, instead of shooting all the scenes in that room, reconfigure the, the set or the studio, whatever, then we could actually do that. And we could also do long tracking shots through the hallways and come into the rooms and make it feel like one space was really crucial to me as well. Going up the staircase and see down and it was all magically. I mean, the producers are the unsung heroes of filmmaking because due to them, they, they were able to get me that set on a super low budget and to be able to even put that in there was amazing. There's there's also a magic that comes with Jane Doe. The actual autopsy take place and the secrets that are revealed. And during that time, you actually also get an emotional autopsy of the relationship between father and son. There's subtleties that you put in, maybe it's the positioning of... Jane Doe's head or the way the camera looks at her. She tells a story without really moving. Was that intentional? Yeah, yeah absolutely. We worked a lot. We made it very difficult for ourselves because really we should just be shoot. We should have spent one day just shooting her shots. Yeah. Or, you know, boom, boom, oh, wow. boom, and just shoot through it. But we would do it day in and day out. Every day we would do her shots as part of the scene to make it match the emotion of that scene, even though she was just still and not 
doing anything. And also there were, you know, very deliberate, in this, from the script, but very deliberate things that, you know, she starts with her eyes closed, we open them, you know, they close. I mean, it's all these things that give an elevation to the haunting feeling of her presence. And uh, the way they position her head and open her mouth, in some scenes she would be feel very vulnerable because she would be lying there with her f eyes open and her mouth open. And then for some technical reason they would close her mouth. And then if we shoot it, we would be so precise with where we would put the camera. Okay, there she looks evil. There she looks innocent. There she looks wow. menacing. There she looks whatever. Just in relation between the camera and the positioning. And you know, we would be shooting like this. And okay, if we put the camera, it's hard to do on a podcast. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so it, it was a lot of stuff like that. It was amazing to play around with. Oh, it's the magic of that, right? My, my understanding is that there was never a prop corp. It was always Owen Kelly performing that role. As no, we had a prop as oh, well. Did. Yeah, for there is a certain part of basically when they start really opening her up. Okay, right, right, right. We, but then we, in VFX afterwards, we would layer her back on top of the prop. So in a blending of her body with the prop, we had four hundred VFX shots in that film, digital VFX shots, which is quite an astounding number for a small movie like this. Oh yeah, a lot of them would be just her eyes. We would be replacing her eyes, eye colors. So there was a bunch of uh, shots already. Did you have to talk to coroners to learn about doing autopsies? I would imagine that would be a big thing. Yeah, no, we had we also had them on set every day. Oh wow! So they would be. I mean, we had rehearsals with them, and I mean, Emil Hirsch went to the LA morgue, and he was. He, I mean, he told talked about it afterwards. I mean, it was a soul destroying experience. Yeah. I think or like. Sure affecting experience yeah. and then we would have uh, sessions with uh, a corner before we started shooting where they would learn how to hold things and use things and be comfortable physically and and then on set there would always be uh, a corner and they were really funny people <laughs> I guess you'd have to be, right? To do that as a living. Yeah. <laughs> Brian Cox was so great in that, oh, in that role. Brilliant. It's like, you know, I, I think even in the horror movies, he was in, he was in, uh, well, he was the original Hannibal Lecter, you know, going back to Manhunter. Yeah. And then I, we, we see him again in Trick or Treat mm -hmm. as the grumpy neighbor in Michael Doherty's movie. And then I saw him in this one, when this came out, people told me, you got to see this movie, you got to see this movie. And I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm in the mood for this. And then when I saw it, I was so blown away by what the movie really is about. I told everybody, you got to see this movie. It is amazing. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. It began as an immensely popular series of books written by Alvin Schwartz beginning in 81. A collection of short horror stories, poems, and songs, some only as long as a page. Tales that are a part of folklore that have been told for generations. Were you exposed to the books at all growing up in Norway? No. They didn't make it over there. I oh, never wow. heard of them until I got a script with a title on it. Wow. It's like a rite of passage here yeah, in right, America. Yeah, like right, you know, elementary school, right? Yeah, like I read them yeah, and read now them. my kids are reading them. They're so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> no, they are truly amazing books. I mean, I totally get why they become such a huge popular part of the culture here. If they had been in Norway, they would have been affecting us as much. We have our own fairy tales, a book like this, where the drawings are half the impression. And the stories is the other half of the impression. And it's basically the same thing. It has the same cultural impact, which in the end became the Trollhunter movie. So I felt like I'd already been kind of doing that same thing now with somebody else's culture. But I also feel like at heart, I feel like I'm at least 25% American anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is it about those stories that you think resonated so well with the children of America? There is a familiarity and there is a, there is a sense of fun that I at least think is great. It's so playful. Uh, the stories are so simple and concrete and at the same time, very playful. And so many, especially in the first book, I think more than the second, 
second and a third, a lot of them end with, okay, and then you turn to your the person next to you and you go, boo. Right, you know? in the direction. <laughs> yeah. Which is incredible. <laughs> yeah. It teaches you how to be a storyteller. Yeah. yeah. We had to use that kind of attitude in the film as well. You're delivering a film that people are already really familiar with the source material. Did you feel a pressure to live up to their expectations? Yeah, but it's a pressure I really thrive with because, or I love because it's uh, that makes it meaningful to make the movie mm -hmm. because I know it's actually going to mean something to somebody. You spend two years of your life doing it. I'm, I'm sacrificing time with my family. A lot of people are putting their trust in me. You can make a completely insignificant movie and make the exact same effort basically on your own as a human being. But then to know from the get-go that this is going to mean something to so many people makes the... I, th I think the pressure is good. Uh, yeah. I had the same thing on Troll Hunter. People were like, oh my God, somebody made a movie about our beloved trolls yeah. that every kid in the country ever has read, all of them, or heard. I found that to be a feature of doing the movie. Sure. Reading those books as a kid, the artwork was just as important as the words. They were just as scary. What I've seen from the trailer is I can tell which stories are in the movie based on the artwork. How important was that to you to include into the film? Oh, it was essential. It's the same as with Trollhunter. We had these drawings and I went straight to that source in designing it. Guillermo and myself, we were both exactly of the same attitude. It has to be exactly like the drawings and we have to find the right people to do it. And obviously he's done so many monsters in his life. He knows everybody and knew exactly who he was going to ask to both act the characters out, to design them, create them, and produce the whole set of characters for the movie. To me, you know, I just walk into a working environment which actually knows what the hell they're doing. Yeah, it was Stephen Gamble who made those drawings and it's in fact why that book was like number seven on the banned books list. And they <laughs> even when they redid it for the right. 30th anniversary of the book, they took all the drawings out because the publishing house is like freaking out. But it's such an important part, if not even more than the stories, right? The look and feel. They're really unique. I mean, these drawings are amazing. I yeah. mean, they're art. And obviously, Guillermo has 10 of them on his wall at home. You know? Oh, he does? Yeah. Oh, the originals? Cool. Originals. Yeah. Oh, wow. That I'm super really cool. jealous right now. <laughs> <laughs> so the creation of the characters is a combination of CGI and practical? Or? It's 90% practical. Wow. It was, oh, wow. it was all molded physically. And Guillermo flew from Toronto where we were prepping the movie on my behalf and obviously he knows he both want he loves his creatures and monsters obviously he flew to LA and stayed there w here with um, people making them and we would be calling okay wh what about this what if we do that and they were taking pictures and sending me pictures and he would be standing there molding it physically with them and discussing just the minute details and uh, we, so we had all four of the main creatures were physical and the digital augmentation is more like they did on Shape of Water where we would have blinking eyes or some muscle movements or somebody wanted to have an arm twisted slightly the other way. We needed to replace it. There is a big scene late in the movie where this creature comes together that is based in one of the stories. That was more or less fully CG, but that's like the only scene and it's like a 30 second scene that is really based in CG. And it was anyway based in the physical objects that we had on set. They would be scanning them and using them as a template for their CG versions. But facial expressions would sometimes be CG enhanced. Did yeah. Guillermo take the creatures home with him? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he did. I mean, he, he told me that he only does that with his own directorial movies. Wow. So I got to take a couple of things home. Ooh, what did you take? What did you take? <laughs> I, I got a book because Ooh, we yes. made so many of them. Yes. Yeah, how many books did you make? We made 60 
16 books for the film. Oh I, my I god. We would like one here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I would I would be honored if you guys would have one here. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have no idea where the rest are. I just was able to st- we had one reshoot day or an additional shoot day uh, yeah. late in the post production and I ran up to the art department person and I was like, "Can I have it?" <laughs> and yeah. That's great. It's uh, amazing. And continue on the look and feel, the house and the set and everything. Tell us about constructing that and getting that look right. The house, the main haunted house in the movie is we had an amazing uh, location scout or location manager who found it like two and a half three hours out of Toronto in some random town that was like why, how, why did you even go there wow <laughs> so it's an actual oh yeah that's an actual structure. house and it was just like a, a really derelict abandoned house that some people owned that had had a fire there some years ago and they couldn't really find a way to finance rebuilding it so it was just sitting there we were just so lucky to be able to film there and the interior looked awesome it was just amazing so we basically took that interior and we had to shoot on set for the interior scenes so we reconstructed the interior of the actual house very close to the way it was in the house we extended a hallway added some doors we took so we took away some doors some details but essentially the same thing yeah no that was amazing i mean we had a, an amazing production designer who really has such an attention to detail what about the approach of the screenplay a lot of people would think maybe going into this it's probably an anthology film but the approach is slightly different yeah i mean when i received the script the first thing i saw was a title scary stories assuming it was an anthology movie as well and i was very thankful and glad that it wasn't because they can be great but they're not necessarily all great so and also you don't in an anthology film i feel like you don't really get to develop a relationship between the characters before you just cut cut off and it's like i made short films and i know how that works you go in hard and you go out hard oftentimes i want to explore the characters lives in a deeper i want to see their dilemmas and how they change through a story i mean i love feature films basically it's that simple what they had done with the script was basically had they had like an american idol process of dwindling down to the their favorite stories oh cool <laughs> and then worked out the plot and the characters and tried to you know fit the scenes into the movie where the creatures would come alive in a very creative way I found and it became a, a wild ride and a, to me an adventure of horror that's kind of what I find this what I always wanted to make this film into and I see that people are catching it that way now and that's great you know typically when a book is adapted into a movie like this the filmmakers take a liberty to change the time period is there any reason why this movie takes place in the 60s 1968 was a very turbulent year obviously for america especially but also worldwide but there was you know the war there was uh, assassinations an election of a president who became infamous more than famous and there were all these things that kind of came together in that time in that specifically in that year and that created a very interesting background for talking for a story that in a way talks about lies and the power of saying something in an environment where uh, it can be lies can be perceived as truth there's a very easy transition to 2019 about that obviously we have a social media presence that is so intense in our lives and it takes so little for somebody to put something online whatever it is and it can really harm somebody teenagers live in that environment with all kinds of wacky apps that really can be used as an evil Mm -hmm. intent in their lives. There is also, of course, political 
situations, which 1968 was, I think, I'm not American, obviously, so I can only speak from a very, you know, outside point of view, but I believe that that's a year or time period when people discovered that the government was capable of lying to you. And that is also a thing that worldwide these days is very evident that they are. I think that is a parallel that we were really concerned with also, just to, that you're supposed to feel in the movie. You know, we don't want to go crazy with that idea, but... Right. It's there. But I also feel like there's this, uh, it makes the whole storyline of the coming of age story, the innocence, the loss of innocence, or, you know, this kid discovering, you know, one another. It makes it more pure as opposed to a present yeah. day story where we're surrounded by technology and distractions, but something like that. They don't have any of that. Yeah, exactly. They have one another. You know? Yeah. And if you say something, it's going to be said to the next person and orally. And, and right. you know, the rumors spread in a very simpler way, but it's the same effect on you as a human being. You know, you know that people are talking about you. I mean, Stella has these issues in the movie. It turns out that the antagonist is also affected by very similar issues that she can relate to right. during the movie when they f discover the background of uh, the character Sarah Bellows. And that goes directly into today. You have this all-star lineup of people who have been involved in the writing of this script. You've got Kevin and Dan Hageman, who wrote The Incredible Hotel Transylvania, the Lego movie. And, I mean, and then you've got <laughs> Del Toro. Yeah. What do you think these people are doing that brings such gravitas and connectability to their stories? I don't know of anybody who writes so much fun banter and understands humorous characters as Dan and Kevin. They're just awesome at creating these kind of wondrous scenes of, not nostalgia, but they also love these movies that they grew up with. You know, I think they've, they have a poster of the Goonies in their office. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you know where some of this is coming from. On the movie, personally, I only work with them and Guillermo. He has a very profound way of thinking of movies. The way he sees a movie from a bird's perspective and sees a story from a bird's perspective when it comes to also themes and how you actually portray these themes in practical storytelling terms is uh, awe-inspiring. I mean, his understanding of, okay, we got to have this political aspect to the film. How do we practically get that across in a movie? What details do we need to put into the movie to get that across? And in a smart way and in a, in a beautiful way. Together, they created this kind of fun and serious and impactful story that uh, I think hoping the movie is right. in the end. You mentioned Goonies and your love of a lot of those films are the Amblin films, right? What do you think it is that mystique that those movies had? They were always taking place in a very small town somewhere and that's something so many people can relate to that you grow up and you see this suddenly magical thing happening in your mundane little world and I think there is so much beauty to that idea and it goes back to Close Encounters and E.T. and all these mm -hmm. films it's basically the same kind of storytelling over and over you know more recent It, Stranger Things I would also say you know honestly Stranger Things and It has absolutely paved the way for this movie to be able to be even be financed and made because they've oh. proven that the audience actually really still love this kind of storytelling, which is a fantastic thing because you kind of forgot it for years and years. That That's right. These kind of young stories are, are worth something to the audience. But when you got the script the first time and you read it, was there any thought that perhaps it could be rated R? No, never. It was always a PG-13 movie. It was always that on the page. I read the PG-13 movie on the page. And I've committed fully to a PG-13 movie. And I feel like I know what that is compared to an R. It's not that difficult, actually, I believe. But my intention was just to make it as scary as possible because to create a scary movie doesn't put a rating on anything. If movie can be terrifying and still have a PG-13 rating, I mean, 
The Ring is PG-13. A Quiet Place is PG-13. Drag Me to Hell is PG-13. Right. Poltergeist was Crazy. PG. When it comes to the ratings board, what is the actual difference between a PG-13 and R-rated film? Number one is, uh, it's actually profanity. I mean, the word, oh. they, you know, they count words. And that's fair. I mean, they, we had the opportunity to use a very dirty swear word once in a movie and still keep a PG-13. We decided not to because we didn't want that word in our movie because we felt it dirty down the movie for no reason sure. whatsoever. I mean, the next thing is, yeah, exactly. It's violence. It's how gruesome you depict a death scene and it's blood, especially blood. Technically seeing red blood is a thing. So we kind of went away from that and it was never really in the script. They knew that writing it, that that was never going to be part of the movie. And anyway, there isn't that much in that, of that kind of stuff in the books. So it doesn't really fit with the, it's, it's very much building tension and horror and building to a scare. And it's scary as fun. That's kind of what is so wonderful about this world. And I think I, you know, I'm hoping that the film has that attitude as well, is that being scared is fun and to scare is fun for me as a director. Working with Guillermo del Toro, what kind of impact did that experience leave on you after this was all done? I'm hoping I'm just a better filmmaker because I've learned so much from him. I've learned so much about how to develop scenes in a script level. I've learned so much about technicality of, of creating certain aspects of a film that I've never really been part of before. Obviously, Creatures is one of them. The editing process was fantastic with Guillermo. I mean, he said, no, I'm going to support your final cut. You cut the movie as you want and I'll support it. But in the end, you know, he, sa he saw the first cut and it was kind of 20 minutes too long, at least. And he said, okay, give me three days in the editing room. Come on, get me in the editing room for three days with you. And I just kind of let him do it. And he and the editor just sat there and he, he just kind of went through the movie. Okay, cut that, cut that, cut that faster, cut that, da, da, da. And it was really, suddenly the movie just sharpened up. And the ability to take those decisions in the editing room is, a, is a gr sometimes emotionally grueling because you've made, there is so much love in a way and care behind every shot. You, you sacrifice so much on set for every single shot you do. So you kind of fall in love with them and you want to keep them if they work. But he just showed a, a very kind ruthlessness in how to make the movie better by sacrificing a few things. And that was a fantastic learning experience. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of people would say, oh my God, somebody took the movie away. No, no, that was never like that. He would say, if you don't like this, what I'm suggesting to you, you put it back in immediately and it's your choice. And some things I did. And he would be like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah. Whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. It's, it's amazing. You know, years ago, I heard Guillermo say that he doesn't like to be an armchair producer. He likes to get involved. He likes to get his hands dirty. He likes to give input, but not to take control or anything, but more than just giving his blessing. But he, he wants to say, hey, you know what? Let's try this. Let's change this. In this case, the editing, the ideas for the, you know, the character designs or whatever. That's pretty amazing that he likes to be that hands-on and involved. Basically, in a prep or in the script stages, when we were reworking the script, a little bit to make it into a shooting script he would be with us for days and days the writers and myself and the other producer we would sit in like a, a writer's room and figure things out that we needed to fix or exchange or whatever then he would be extremely involved and then when we were shooting it he wouldn't be much involved he came on set a couple of days and just visited and, you know, and then we did a, a day of some extra photography on one, a couple of the creatures just to add a couple of shots against the green screen. And then he would be like, Andre, can I go over and direct this one shot? <laughs> oh, man. I have, a, I have these <laughs> ideas in mind. And he would be, okay, of course you can. I mean, <laughs> my God, that's my honor. And he would be, you know, designing one, you know, there is a great shot of uh, the pay lady in uh, one of the corridor scenes where the camera is like going from her feet and up to her face. And that was yeah. his shot. And he was just kind of 
like that's the way you want to introduce her and yeah I mean if, my god that's a shot <laughs> so, I saw someone yeah. in the cast that Javier Botet is in the movie yeah wow because I mean this guy is what 7 foot 4 or something he's really really tall right and he's very thin and he does he play a specific character or uh yeah I mean he plays uh, the big toe corpse oh yeah <laughs> okay yeah, yeah no, he was amazing I mean such a good performer I mean amazing the way he would just he would come on to set and he would just kind of immediately be that character I barely directed him Oh, he just kind of showed me a, a, a version of the character as soon as he walked onto, you know, he's sat there for six hours or some crazy number with getting all this prosthetic and makeup on <laughs> right. and, and with the, the eyes being poked out and everything. He would just give me this character and it was like, okay, yeah, that works. I'm beloved. <laughs> I know a lot of the scary stories had to deal with ghosts. Have you had any paranormal experiences with ghosts? I'm such a damn realist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead boring. <laughs> no, some people have ghost stories and yeah, they tell yeah. them and no, I get it. I haven't seen one. I don't think I want to. I think but... you pretty, yeah, I think you actually won't want a ghost yeah. story to happen to you. Talk a bit about getting the score right and who you brought on to do that. I've been a huge fan of Marco Beltrami's for oh, yeah. years. I've been I, I've been sitting for days listening to just one track from World War Z or some movie, uh, iRobot, or hours and hours and hours. The same music, so I know it intimately, and I love his music. And he brought on board uh, a younger, fresh voice in composing, Anna Drubich, and she did an amazing job. I have to admit, I don't know exactly the how they work together in in the mechanics of the day to day work on it, but together they created a really creative, unique score where they would, for example, score each of the pieces with a different attitude there are two really favorite moments and that is the end at the very end of the movie there is a cue that is just so beautiful going into the credits and also the pay lady sequence in all the red uh, hallways is just so intense and surreal and crazy and I think it's half that scene I mean I, I think we constructed a you know we edit and shot and edited a, a scene that really works but the music just added a whole new layer to it cinematography did you bring the same cinematographer you worked on with Jane Doe onto yeah. this one. Yeah. What is it that you love so much about that cinematography you can talk a bit about? It? He has an eye for composition and light that is just astounding. I mean, I'm, I sometimes I just can sit and watch shots in, in Jane Doe, just like some close-ups, low-angle close-ups of Emil Hirsch sitting there over his father at the end of the movie. And it's just this stunning, subtle light. And I don't even, under the pressure of making a movie that is so, you have so little time the ability to, under that pressure, finesse the light into this kind of delicate, beautiful imagery is unbelievable to me. I'm a, a very avid hobby photographer myself. I've been doing it for 20 years. I went, uh, my film school was also a photography school. So I have a love for composition. And anytime I, I know where to put the camera, but he always elevates it. I mean, he always think, he always sharpens up every image with much more amazing um, compositions that I can even imagine. His sense of color and camera moves is just fantastic. I mean, I'm like obsessive about low angle cameras. I mean, you'll see in every movie I do from Jane Doe and out till right. it's gonna, gonna, the camera's going to be there and the actor's going to be there. Oh, sorry. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Was there a specific uh, story or sequence that you enjoyed uh, directing the most? The Pay Lady sequence is actually, which we just call it, is kind of an amazing construction that I was terrified of. Getting, I, I was delaying and delaying planning it because I was so scared of how we were going to be able to make it work. But when we actually started working on it, Roman and me, we kind of figured it out. And you had to, we had to be so precise because everything is just told with 
imagery for three minutes of this character coming from all kinds of directions and the directions are all so similar. So just the ability to orient the audience and disorient them and disorient the character and orient him and right. back and forth. It's kind of became kind of an insane endeavor. Right. I think it works. I've seen reviewers and people online going really appreciating the scene. Is there a specific story or sequence that did not make the final cut? Not that we cut out of the movie as shot, but we had a scene um, in a, the script I received. There was a story called High Beams. Oh, yeah, another one. That was in the script, but we changed some aspects of the story and the character relationships, and suddenly a big thing that happened in that scene was affected. It had to just had to go. So if we ever get an opportunity to make a sequel, I'm going to do my best to get it in there. <laughs> what is Halloween like in Norway? I know different countries, some people, they don't celebrate it as much as it is celebrated here. What is it like in Norway? When I grew up, it didn't really exist. It was in a very American, obviously it is an American yes. holiday. So, But then 10 years ago, I would say, shops started discovering they could sell stuff yeah. on that day. <laughs> That's all it takes. <laughs> so honestly, it's became a very commercialized, very highly commercialized introduction to uh, to the thing. But it's, you know, it is as joyful for us now. It's huge. I mean, it's just growing every year. It's going, it's kind of nuts. It's increasing the intensity of Halloween is increasing by 25% every year, I feel like. So, and my kid loves it. And everybody around in Oslo, you see everybody go nuts on Halloween now. You get into it because it's such a wonderful holiday. Your next project that you're going to be working on after this, do you know what it is yet? It's called The Long Walk. Oh, oh. Stephen King. Yes. That's exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. So uh -huh. when does that process begin or has it already begun? I mean, it's already begun in the background, but it had to take up. Uh, pause for me being able to release or uh, help release scary stories right sure again for scary stories so a family can take their kids to go see it much like they went and saw Close Encounters or Goonies and E.T. and films of that nature yeah absolutely and I mean that's been the intent is to kind of try to introduce young film moviegoers to horror like proper horror but a horror movie they can actually go and see in the theaters in the same way that the books initially were kind of a, a gateway yeah a gateway yeah. yeah exactly a gateway in for uh, young readers that's the ideal i mean my dream you know scenario is that 10 years from now some 20 year old or 25 year old will say my first real horror experience was with scary stories to tell in the dark going forward do you feel like you want to stick with the horror genre as directing or writing oh absolutely producing? i mean I, I yeah no i love the horror genre i've loved it from I was a, you know for, for as young as I could be to see horror movies Great. I remember when I was I grew up as a VHS kid not a cinema goer mm. kid just to get a hold of movies like uh, Evil Dead or something they were all illegal in Norway Oh, they were wow. banned. Yeah. Was that because of the rating? Yeah, or they the, were just too tough. And they were edited. So there, there were some versions of some movies that would come in and they were so cut to pieces. Oh, I mean, even oh, The wow. Omen, when I finally saw The Omen, like the, on Laserdisc or whatever, it was like, oh my God, there's all this stuff that I've never seen before. <laughs> <laughs> How were you getting them? Were you doing mail order or yeah, trading I mean, tapes and things like that? You know, I had somebody would go to London and they were like, can you please bring back Dawn of the Dead, Evil Dead. <laughs> <laughs> How fun though, discovering yeah. all those like yeah. Yeah. though it makes it even more yeah, sinister it's, right yeah, it's exactly yeah. <laughs> well andre thank you so much for joining us and best of luck with scary stories yeah. it's going to do phenomenal thank you again so we're much excited. We're, yeah, excited. We're, we're excited we're pumped we're pumped thank you thank you for having me okay we saw it should we go now
recorded the chicken. That was a Boo Crew Podcast, episode 60. Special thanks to our guest, Andre Overdahl. Follow him at Film Troll on Twitter, at Andre Overdahl on Instagram. That's A-N-D-R-E-O-V-R-E-D-A-L. And check out all his incredible projects like The Autopsy of Jane Doe and Troll Hunter. If you're listening to this at the time of release, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is in theaters now. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. Bye.